there's real value in getting a lot of people on your mission that aren't on your payroll. And so the more you can provide an opportunity for distributed support, for open source platforms that have that have your mission at their heart, the more you can tap into the power of the crowd to build what the impact that you want to have. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and we're incredibly lucky today to feature a real unsung hero in the nonprofit space, the Chief Data Officer of Giving Tuesday, Woodrow Rosenbaum. If you're not familiar with Giving Tuesday, you absolutely should be. It's a one-of-a-kind global generosity movement, inspiring people and organizations around the world to give in whatever ways and at whatever scale are most meaningful to them, and to unleash the power of radical generosity. One of the things that makes the movement so unique and special is that it's designed to be totally open source. The Giving Tuesday organization is there to create, inspire, and unite others in joining the movement. But the actual campaigns, the local engagements, the marketing, and to a large extent, the branding, is totally open for the global social impact community to make their own. In its history, Giving Tuesday has mobilized tens of thousands of organizations, reached tens of millions of donors, and quite literally, raised billions of dollars for a wide variety of social causes around the world. While we in the West think about Giving Tuesday largely in terms of financial contributions, it really is much more than that. It's about giving back to our communities in whatever ways we see fit, raising awareness, volunteering, helping out a neighbor, or even things as simple as paying it forward or sharing some smiles with those around you. For many organizations, it's a unique opportunity to lead conversations around their causes, to reach people they wouldn't have otherwise, and a new way to add fuel to the fire of their holiday fundraisers that really opens the options box for creativity and style. Ultimately, the data the Giving Tuesday team is uncovering through their efforts has the potential to create a new unified data model for the social sector, transform the way social good organizations think about and engage their supporters, and could even unlock the nature of generosity itself. We usually start every show by diving into the childhood stories of our guests, and maybe we'll get a chance to do that in a future episode. But given Woodrow's unique vantage point on the sector, the timeliness of Giving Tuesday, and the amazing insights he has to share, we're just going to dive right in. Woodrow, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some insights with us. It's a pleasure. Very happy to be here. And the main question I have for you, it seems to me, you know, based on our conversations and uh, my understanding of your, your resume, uh, you know, while you began your career in private sector marketing, really the foundation of your work revolves around unlocking human nature, how people engage with brands and causes and what inspires them. You know, is, is that true? And, and what made you really want to pursue that as, as an idea uh, and dedicate your career to? Yeah, I think that's largely true. I mean, I don't know if I ever made a decision on my career. You know, I think as with a lot of people, my career kind of evolved. But at the end of the day, what I'm doing now is about understanding how we motivate behaviors. That's essentially what I did as a commercial marketer. Is, is there something particular about that that drew you to it initially? Or was it sort of by happenstance? Yeah, I mean, it was more or less by happenstance. Um, I think I've, I've always found it. I mean, I'm not a data guy. It's not that my, my background is not in the math, but I've always been really interested in how we can collect and understand the data that in ways that tell us how we can nudge people in a direction. And, and I got, I found it really thrilling when it was about 
changing people's behavior around what whiskey they prefer. Um, and this, this work is like that, but just scaled up. Um, it's purposeful and we're talking about a global systems change, which is a very exciting breadth of mandate. It doesn't get much bigger than that. It's really interesting to hear somebody whose, whose title is chief data officer describe themselves as not a data person. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we have guys on our team who are data scientists and, and their background is, is in the, the science part of it and uh, not, none of what we do. And I, I imagine and, and have in, and envision for our work would be possible without that. Uh, I'm conversant in the work for sure, but I don't have the, the technical background. I actually love that. I think, you know, it's always most exciting when somebody ends up doing something that's sort of against their, their type or, or their thought of, of themselves. I think in a lot of ways that, you know, they end up being the more successful. You know, you, you talk about getting uh, in contact with Giving Tuesday, starting your Giving Tuesday journey, really through your work inspiring people across Canada specifically to give back. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, that that initiative, why it was important to you to inspire Canadians and sort of how that uh, process evolved? Yeah, again, more or less by accident. Um, the There's a foundation in Canada, the Give Three Foundation. It's an organization with a mission to get Canadians to be more philanthropic. And I met the founder of Give Three. And this was well before Giving Tuesday started. And I was helping them to, to find ways of changing behavior and looking at that kind of the, the cha behavior change at scale. And John Hallward, the, the founder of that organization, really saw it also as a marketing problem. And he came from a marketing background, in fact, from a market research background. And so what, by the time Giving Tuesday came around, we'd been working in this space trying to kind of understand what can we learn about how people give? How can we apply some commercial marketing data science practice to measuring what's going to make a difference? And then what can we deploy in order to make that change? And so Giving Tuesday was perfect fit for that. We saw what was happening in the U.S. in 2012. And John and I were like, you know, we could we could do that here. <laughs> and we did. For anyone who hasn't heard of Give3, can you uh, say you know more specifically what it is and give a little bit of the, the story behind it? John would be the better man to tell the story, but um, this was it started out as John's family foundation, and he uh, transitioned it to a registered charity in Canada again with a mission to uh, get Canadians to be more philanthropic. And it was actually Give3 and Canada Helps, which is a, a charity that's a donation platform um, and support just supports uh, a lot of small to mid-sized organizations in Canada to um, do digital giving um, and started doing that like in 2001, like really early. Uh, and so so Give3 in Canada helps partner to, to bring the movement uh, to Canada. And in terms of aligning with Give3 mission, there was a number of different um, programs that we were doing, but in terms of the mission to actually change behavior, Giving Tuesday just um, delivered so much better than anything else we had, we had experimented with up till that point. Um, how did you connect with them? It sounds like you reached out at some point, you know, were they open to that? 
collaboration? Uh, I John was actively looking for someone to support the the work as he re envisioned the as he sort of developed the vision for the organization. So it was really early in that transformation. I can't remember who somebody introduced us. Said you guys are thinking similarly and. Um, yeah, that we took it from there. For anyone who doesn't know uh, out there, can you give a bit of the you know the, the founding story and how it's evolved uh, to this point? I've always found this so interesting. You know, I think about a lot about the questions we ask and how asking the right question is how you get to the right insights. And likewise, actually asking the wrong question can often do the opposite. And what I find so interesting about the origin of Giving Tuesday is how it started with a question. It was what if we had a day to celebrate giving? And it wasn't really any more complex than that. In fact, I think that simplicity is one of the things that worked so well. Asha and Henry were working at 92Y in New York. That was their their thesis was essentially, we have these two days for consumption. What if we had a day for giving? And the answer to that is, dramatic change in global behavior and millions, tens of millions of people taking action and and thousands and thousands of organizations in every country of the world activating people's generosity. It's really a profound answer to that fairly simple question. It seems like the, the growth and rapid success was somewhat unexpected. Uh, how did you guys respond to that when it, you know, when it was clear it was really taking off? Yeah, I think, I mean, unexpected, perhaps unplanned for. I mean, the idea, it, it, I, I guess the the formation of the idea had some principles that really were key to why it took off the way it did. I think the decision not to brand it with the originating organization was just highly unusual, still highly unusual within the sector, right? This idea that you would put something out there and not try to own it. Um, but that was really, really important for it to get momentum in the first year, because it meant that anybody felt like they could make it their own. That led to a, an immediate co-creation, peer learning environment community from day one. It was comparatively small in day one, but because of that, then it scales exponentially from there, right? And so you look at the Canadian example, like when, when we looked at this from Canada and said, we could do that. We contacted 92Y. We talked to Henry and Asha. And we were like, hey, would it be okay if we did this here? And they were like, yeah, here's everything we did. This is all you need to know. Here are the tools. There are no rules. Go for it. And that was, you know, although there was no plan for it to be global, there was also no plan to constrict it, to restrict it. There was always this idea that it could be as big as anybody was going to be prepared to make it. And it turns out that that coupled with the fact that generosity is a fundamental human value, it turns out, meant that it did just scale essentially out of control. Now, not without a lot of fostering and support and the core team, you know, giving that opportunity to for peer learning and for the establishment of best practices. It's not leaderless. Um, in fact, it's been described as leaderful. And, and so although there was no plan for it to be in all countries everywhere, 
it was set up for that success from the beginning. What's what's the learning, do you think, just from that little piece of it for organizations out there? Because, you know, many nonprofits are afraid to share their logos with people, uh, their their color schemes. They don't want others sort of reprinting their materials and things like that. Like, what, what do you think that the takeaway is from giving Tuesday's ability to open source a lot of this stuff that other organizations can draw from within their own campaigns? There's real value in getting a lot of people on your mission that aren't on your payroll. And so the more you can provide an opportunity for distributed support, for open source platforms that have that have your mission at their heart, the more you can tap into the power of of the crowd to to build what what your the impact that you want to have. Now, individual organizations have different, I mean, there are different circumstances that you're facing, including legal, and um, not everybody is going to be able to just not police their, uh, their trademark. Um, but as a principle, co-creation and collaboration are not particularly well established in the nonprofit sector. And so the real learning is not like, hey, don't worry about your logo. The real learning is we do better when we work together and when we give people an opportunity to be part of the solution with us. Uh, what's the scope of Giving Tuesday today? I mean, it, it's it's a global phenomenon. Uh, what does that mean in tangible numbers? First of all, we see grassroots Giving Tuesday activity in every country of the world. In some places, like Antarctica, might be a couple of tweets. Um, in other places, there's you know massive movements driven by or you know really structured organizations who are have hundreds and hundreds of of community partners like there's lots of variation besides the just grassroots activity everywhere there there are over 75 countries that have kind of a, more, an official quote unquote giving tuesday leadership team a group, an individual, an organization that we are working with directly, that we have connected to the rest of the leadership network for peer learning, who are fostering the movement in their country. Um, then, you know, in the US, there's 300 community movements. We don't certainly have, aren't able to track all of them. We actively support as many as we can, but they, you know, anybody can start a Giving Tuesday um, campaign in their country. And in, you know, 16 million donors last year on Giving Tuesday in the U.S., about 19 million people participated, something like that. Um, there's, and that growth trajectory we see in uh, not always the same order of magnitude, but we see um, the more countries come on, the more activity we see in all of these countries. With, with such, you know, diversity in how people are making the campaign their own, the, the branding they use, the, the style of engagement they use. What are some of the differences and trends, you know, if any, that you see around the world? Like how, how is India different from the U.S. compared to Africa, compared to Europe? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in some ways, um, the, there are some fundamentals that are the same, and that's really interesting. And in just the, the way that generosity is so such a foundational fundamental component of human experience is true everywhere. The expression of it does vary by culture and circumstance to be sure. 
So we see it in how people participate in Giving Tuesday. In about half the countries, donating money is the most common behavior. Although it's definitely worth noting that only donating money is the least common behavior. Everywhere in the world, most people participating in Giving Tuesday do so in more than one way. So, and again, in about half the countries, the, the most common way is giving money. In other countries, in Africa, it's giving stuff. In some places, it's volunteering. Yeah, again, but those people also doing other things. So we do see that, that variability. A lot of that de sort of depending on how the movement evolved and the organizations that are, that are creating it. What I think is really interesting is in some places, we see that there's a, a high awareness or growing awareness, and then you get a high participation rate among the aware. Right. So then, and essentially that's the way it has worked in the U S and Canada since the beginning, you've got a percentage of people who hear about it and, the, and two thirds to three quarters of those people choose to participate in some way. And then, so then as your awareness increases, we see that the participation rate stays pretty sta stable. And so then you just get more and more people. And I had kind of naively expected it to work that way in other places but it doesn't. Um, and so it was really interesting the first time we looked at uh, awareness and behavior in Kenya, for example. So, so participation rate in Kenya is 100%. So when we looked at that, we were like, well, something's broken, right? We've done, some, we've made some horrible mistake. But when you dig deeper, what you find is that the way people become aware in Kenya is by participating. And there's a number of countries like that where it's such a grassroots experience that it's not like there's a communications campaign and some portion of people who hear about it do a thing. In fact, it's the other way around. It's a bunch of people do a thing and then therefore by definition, they've heard about it. And, and so it's interesting to see the difference there and to understand that we actually have some interesting opportunities to look at how those campaigns evolve to be so owned by the givers that there's essentially no difference between the people who participate and the people who've heard about it. Now, there's challenges that come with that as well, right? <laughs> Ideally, you want the awareness of your movement to grow. but So it's not like one is better than the other, but this is a great example of a peer learning opportunity where the global North and the West can kind of learn from these much more grassroots engagements and we can help those grassroots campaigns to leverage communications methodology to help get the word out further. So it's not that one is uh, empirically better, um, but it is really interesting to see that there are fundamental differences in how it evolves. It seems like, you know, you mentioned uh, generosity is a human value. It seems like that's kind of what's at play is people see this opportunity to, to express generosity, express that value, and then they just participate whether anybody asks them to or not. Yeah. And this is, the, I mean, this is the thing that's a little bit challenging to capture as well. Like there's a lot of people who do a thing because of Giving Tuesday, right? That Giving Tuesday happens and somebody did an activation and they got involved and they have no idea, right? They just did a thing. And, and that's fantastic. It's indicative of how the movement has been, has had utility for the organizations and causes that use it as a rallying point. 
Um, obviously, we want to see more people be aware of the movement and to get involved. And um, yes, for more givers to do it, but also and more importantly, so that there are more organizations and individuals co-creating it and that we're in particular diversifying the the group of participants that are making Giving Tuesday what it is. But I hope that always remains the case, right? The, the lovely thing about a distributed movement is that it moves without you. What are some of the misconceptions you, you'd want to correct? And how, more importantly, how do you want to see organizations engage with this? How do you, how do you want to see them viewing the opportunity and, and getting it out there to their folks? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think to just address the first thing you said there, right? Like give to me because it's giving Tuesday is not a compelling ask. And, and it, and there are two main problems with people using that approach. One is it might be better than nothing, right? <laughs> So an organization sends out an email and all they say is that give to me because it's giving Tuesday and here's my donation form and they get a result and they're like, great. And, and I worry about that because that is really not the best practice, right? Better than nothing is not the bar we should have in the sector. And I should point out like this is, I've, I've faced this issue with in other examinations as well, not just Giving Tuesday, right? I remember talking to a foundation, they were like, our Leave a Legacy campaign does really well. That that message really resonates. And I said, well, compared to what? And they're like, well, compared to when we're not campaigning. <laughs> okay, well, better than nothing is not good enough. Secondly, is the, the organizations, and I do see less and less of this by percentage every year, but those organizations that send out an email and say, give to me because it's Giving Tuesday and they don't get a good result and they're like, doesn't work. Well, Giving Tuesday is not a reason to give. Giving Tuesday amplifies what you're doing. It primes the pump. It gets people excited. The majority of donors on Giving Tuesday say that they did it so they could be part of a bigger group of people giving back. That's great. Giving Tuesday provides urgency, which research has shown is the most important driver of donation intent. You wanna be in on the fun, you gotta give on the day. But it's not a reason to give to your organization. Your organization has to tell a compelling, emotionally driven story of impact to then tap into that heightened environment for giving. And if you look at it that way, it's a very different equation and that's where the best practice is. And the nice thing about it actually is that it that means that it's not just about Giving Tuesday. Urgency, even without an emergency, is really important to generate. And we can create these giving moments. Giving Tuesday is packaged up for you, ready to go, you should do it, but you don't have to only do that. You can create those moments, including in collaboration with other organizations all year round. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it speaks to the idea of somebody feeling urgency to give, you know, having it be a platform you respond to and ask, that, that sort of thing. But also being part of the community speaks to something I think many organizations overlook or, or don't don't appreciate uh, as much as they might, um, which is, you know, treating your supporters like, like whole people with lives and things that are going on outside of the confines of, of your campaign. Uh, does that resonate at all? And can you speak to like, you know, what, what an ask or what, what the Giving Tuesday sort of moment in time might mean to 
somebody who just wants to get involved in various ways year round. Yeah. So as I said, most people on Giving Tuesday are taking more than one action. So that's how people prefer to give is in a variety of ways. We also can see that just in general, it's very rare. And interestingly, you know, in, in seven countries and multiple regions of the world, we recently did some research that showed that this is true everywhere, that only giving one way is very rare. Very few people only give money or only volunteer. And yet most of the engagements we see are highly transactional, very focused on the donation, not giving people an opportunity to feel like they're part of the solution with you, that they're a partner in your mission. And so if we can take this learning from Giving Tuesday and, and, and apply it to how we engage overall, it gives us a lot more opportunities for touch points because we can give people more opportunities to get involved in more ways, more ways into the organization to, and, you, and more of a dialogue with our supporters about what we're doing together, what we're accomplishing, why we're doing it, our, our challenges and our, and our triumphs, that relationship is gonna do a lot for fostering a longer term, more, um, more effective result from your group of supporters, including you're gonna get more money from them. It's not, it's not get them to do these other things and engage them instead of money. That is literally how you get the best donation result. So the learning here is having that holistic view of your supporter. And the fact that most organizations probably don't have much of an idea of anything other than the donation trends for their supporters is problematic. And it's one of the things, you know, I think about commercial marketing. We knew a lot. We had a lot of insight into the the profile of our customer and a really a firm understanding of the fact that we had we needed to find multiple ways of engaging what mattered and our goal was still the same it was a sale um, and behavior change on on the purchase um, but to get there you need you need to do more than than just the straight up transactional relationship. Yeah, I like your your whiskey analogy too. You know, if if nobody's going to only drink one whiskey for the, their entire life, right? I mean, I'm a whiskey lover too. I I, pref I like scotch, you know, mainly, but you know, I like uh the Balvini, but I also like Lagavulin and like all these different brands, right? How how do you think organizations are are best served when they think about other causes in the space and, and nurturing those connections, building partnerships? being aware that their donors also support other ones and and that's that's value add rather than uh, a risk yeah i think that 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 scarcity mentality really has limited the sector quite substantially in part making it a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy right we, we have this feeling like we've hit the ceiling when in fact the data show that there's a lot more elasticity in people's giving so we have room to grow, but if we're constantly acting as if we don't, then we never break out. And early days, Giving Tuesday is the perfect example of this because in the early days, there was an assumption that Giving Tuesday couldn't possibly be additive because you know the, the skeptics felt like giving is flat. You can't increase giving 
all you can do is move the money around. If someone gives today, then by definition, they must give less later. It was like the speed of light. And the the reality is that's just not true. And so when I, some of our earliest work was looking longitudinally, getting 10 years of transaction level data so we can see what the statistical impact of Giving Tuesday as an intervention was in the system, and and it generated a spike, and it didn't, and there wasn't a cannibalization. This is this work has now been repeated in other countries to show that this is the case, which as a, would not surprise any commercial marketer, right? No commercial marketer would be like, well, I don't want them to buy today because then they won't buy tomorrow. It just doesn't work that way, and and look. The commercial sector and the nonprofit sector and buying and giving are not exactly the same, but they're perhaps not as different as people think they are. And the most important thing here is that in an environment where we're working together and collaborating, sometimes very directly, right? Like Feminism on Tap launched on Giving Tuesday, group of organizations in um, an area working together. We've seen this with community movements. Um, where all of a sudden there's a community movement in Canada where all the organizations um, in the like in this town came together and did a single campaign. We've seen it with things like Giving Zoo Day. We do better when we work together. We are nowhere near the ceiling on people's ability to give. We see it with natural disasters. We see it with Giving Tuesday. It doesn't have to be natural disasters and Giving Tuesday. We can drive it more. And so as soon as you break out of that, we've, we're, we've, we've hit our maximum. As soon as you break out of that scarcity mentality, it opens up all kinds of opportunity for collaboration and experimentation and innovation and a lack of fear to be active and try new things. Um, so I, I, I think we've seen... Giving Tuesday start to change people's minds about that. Um, and and then my hope is that what we see is that that changes our practice overall, that it's not just, yeah, I collaborate on Giving Tuesday, um, but I look for those opportunities uh, other times of the year because we can, we can lift, we can, we can rise, the tide will can rise. And, and so if we, if we're not just, thinking we're trying to fight for our piece of the pie and instead making a bigger pie, we'll all do better. Maybe it's a strange transition, but I, th I think there's a, honestly, like a natural connection to the COVID pandemic. COVID, I think, would have been a really easy excuse for everybody to close their wallets, go into panic mode, not do anything. Um, and, you know, one expectation might be that just giving in general would would decrease significantly. What were the trends that you've seen as people engaged with causes through this global pandemic? And uh, we'll, we can get this later too, but you know, what, what's that opportunity moving forward? Like how has COVID fundamentally shifted the giving landscape? That's a great question. And, and COVID and its impacts in 2020 in general is just such an instructive moment, huge risk and threat to organizations and the sector and people and perhaps once in a lifetime opportunities. And understanding and navigating those is gonna be really important. I think we've got a lot of attention being paid to a threat and not enough to the opportunity. So I think 
two of the things that are really important to understand and navigate. One is there was more giving, but it didn't help all organizations. And that's, that's, that, that was a unique situation and substantially problematic, right? We, we saw more dollars, but most organizations did worse. So that's a, that's really hard to navigate, right? Um, there are a lot of things impacting that. Um, but the, the one I think we need to pay attention to is agility because one of the main factors dictating whether you're on the winning or losing side of that ledger was your ability to pivot. Also your willingness, because what you laid out is true that there's a lot of organizations that expected a bad result. And so they acted in advance as if they would get a bad result. And if you didn't show up, you weren't going to be supported. So this expectation that people were going to close their wallets was not true. But if you weren't out there being present, then you were not going to get their donations. And, and so, yeah, for some, it was harder to do because of business model, because of pause area, because of demands on services, because of the, where you were operating, like a whole list of reasons why that might have been more difficult. But your willingness to be active was one of those factors that you actually have control over. The other major trend, and this speaks to the opportunity, is we saw a reversal of the multi-year trend for fewer and fewer givers. This relates to the other issue in that people were responding to their concerns and their fears with generosity. The more concerned people were about COVID, the more likely they were to take generous action. And that was true despite the fact that they were, there were a lot of people who were um, uncertain about their financial situation, but they were giving in their communities in lots and lots of ways. So yes, responding directly to COVID impacts, but also things like just donating money to small businesses. So people doing that is really, in that wasn't a category of giving in 2019, right? Like, sure, it may have happened, but it not like 2020, that was a, a, a major way that people were giving back was donating money to the small businesses in their community and mutual aid networks and a whole other, collection of behaviors. So that that demonstrates that there was it was a hot giving environment. Organizations that were out there were finding a very responsive community. You need a good message, you needed to reach people, all those things, but it was hot. And the result of this was despite most organizations struggling, we actually saw an increase in the number of givers in the sector for the first time in a long, long time. We've had this multi-year trend of fewer and fewer givers. And I'm sure a lot of people have seen the research from the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy and others showing 2018 as an example, big drop in the number of households in the U.S. giving. 2018, a bit of an outlier, but part of a, an ongoing trend. Fewer and fewer people doing more and more of the giving. That completely reversed in 2020. So... This is something that I don't think we're paying enough attention to as a sector because that's a we may not get that op opportunity back. Those donors also are those donors who were acquired 
in 2020 are proving to be pretty sticky in 2021. In, in the first quarter, higher new donor retention than ever seen before. That trend seems to continue into the rest of the year a bit. This is huge because we might be able to come out of this really challenging situation, this situation that was, that was harmful to the majority of organizations. We may be able to come out of this with a more resilient, larger pool of donors. And that's only going to be true if we take advantage of the opportunity. So what, when I hear people say, I wonder what the donors are going to do this year, my response is, what are you going to motivate them to do? We could reverse one of the most damaging trends in this sector of the past decade, but only if we take action to do so. Why do you think this is happening? Like, why, why was there this multi-year decline? And then, you know, stickiness has always been a problem in the sector, uh, especially with, with one-time donors. Why, why has that been reversed? Is it just something about the donors has shifted or was the shift in, in donations away from organizations that were worse in engagement and towards organizations that are just better at driving retention? What, what are some of the root causes, do you think? Let's start with some clarity on what we're talking about. Because when we, when we talk about donor behavior, it's really important to understand that we're talking about the confluence of donor and fundraiser behavior. Most donations are solicited by somebody, even peer-to-peer, -peer, maybe especially peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, so it's not just like, what are the donors doing, right? It's like, what's the practice of the fundraising at, at least as much? That's so then point. to answer your first question, let's think of like, I, I remember in 2019 talking about this a lot, right? Seeing the trend and an organization saying like, oh no, <laughs> a lot of people are wringing their hands, fewer and fewer donors. And then you ask fundraisers, well, who do you spend your time approaching? Well, the high value donors, I gotta keep them. And so I spend my time with those guys. Well, guess what? <laughs> So I don't think that's the entire picture. Um, I think that there's there's challenges. Our, our models that are 30 years old don't translate to younger donors as well. Um, young Younger adult donors under 40 feel more financially constrained um, and are less proactive givers. They're also more charitably inclined though. So. I don't think our I don't think our sector has pivoted off the 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 decades old donor stewardship models and maybe not even pivoted off but but combined that with an engagement of this these other donor groups who are more inclined to monthly giving for example which has a huge value so our practice needs to keep up with the diversification of the donor marketplace and I don't think it has um, and then we get to 2020 and we've got a whole bunch of things driving people's behavior, including just wanting to have agency over all the bad stuff that's going on. And that drove people to take a lot of action um, and a lot more people to take action. It had a whole bunch of other um, results that were less, <laughs> less productive for the sector. But, but that just shows these, that these people not not despite times being tough, but especially when times are tough, are, are stepping up. 
And so when we have these, these moments like Giving Tuesday, like a natural disaster, like all of 2020, right? This is where we have an opportunity to solidify some longer term behaviors. Uh, but only again, only if we actually do something about it. As organizations are seeing better attention, right? As these new sort of COVID donors, as we can, I guess, call them, um, you know, have, have shown themselves to be stickier. You know, it's, it's on how much is like their mentality as a donor, the behavior of the fundraisers you described. Is it is that stickiness uniform across a sector or is it weighted towards organizations that are just paying more attention to marketing and retention, those types of things? It just as with Giving Tuesday, we see donors acquired on Giving Tuesday are stickier. Existing donors who give on Giving Tuesday tend to increase their giving at a, at a faster rate. I think some of that is about what what Giving Tuesday brings as a moment, but also just how organizations who are embracing using Giving Tuesday are doing donor stewardship. There are there are good practices, um, and I'm sure that that's a, a, a component of it. I think right now in 2021, because retention is kind of all over the map, new donor retention is really beginning of the year started so strong, I think is is partly about those organizations that were acquiring donors in 2020 are kind of still in the fight in early 2021. And so that gives you this, this natural opportunity for that engagement. But I think any organization can look at the donors they acquired last year and think about how did I acquire them? What was the channel? What was the message? What did they care about, right? In order to determine how they're going to maintain that relationship, including getting involved with those donors values and giving them opportunities to support you that aren't necessarily donations. Um, there's a there's another another component here which is both a challenge and an opportunity in that the retention and donor growth have decoupled. So it the norm the norm over many years is that for essentially well we only saw donor growth when we had high retention. They were highly correlated. And, and there's an assumption, if you look at that data prior to 2020 and you can go, well, you know, we, we can't grow unless, we, unless organizations retain. Turns out that's not true because 2020, we saw the opposite. And now we're in this situation, which I get is like highly uncertain and very challenging for organizations to navigate because it's so unpredictable that retention and growth are not linked. But this is also freeing, right? Because it means that there is a lot, again, more elasticity is a good thing. And people will give to a lot more causes and that we don't have to worry so much about competition. And so what if we get active and and Think about how we're engaging in in inspiring ways that we have. We can see some of these, like we can raise the the floor. At the same time, it, it's it is challenging and unpredictable. Um, retention retention's all over the map. It's all the map quarter to quarter. Last last year, acquisition up, retention down, recapture up. How do you plan for that? I don't know. It's going to be tough. <laughs> it's going to be tough. But if I were a fundraiser, I'd be thinking about this amazing opportunity for new donor retention, and I'd be working hard at recapture, right? Getting back those donors who moved around. Donor mobility 
is like I get it. Like, and a lot of people are upset about it because there's been such a such a focus on retention as the key to everything that as soon as that drops and it did, it just throws everybody's system into turmoil. But donor mobility has an advantage as well because it speaks to what we were talking about before that we have not tapped out the giver. So what we need to do is mitigate and leverage and and those opportunities to leverage do exist. And, um, and if we're too focused on the risk to mitigate, we're gonna miss it. It sounds to me like there's a ton of opportunity in the idea of donor mobility just to give people some variety and keep their excitement high. Like if, if three organizations or, or three, you know, a group of organizations that are aligned in culture and values and cause areas, generally speaking, start to build cycles where they're sharing a common donor base. Um, I feel like that could, that would just raise, you know, raise their tide uh, a ton. I mean, anecdotally, we, we hear about it all the time. These organizations that use giving Tuesday as this moment to, collaborate on something together and do better than they ex could have done by themselves. Um, and I do think that I do think that there's huge opportunity for that. I think it's inspiring to givers when they see organizations working together, whether they're cause aligned or community aligned or whatever it may be. So I, yeah, I think that there's, there's a big opportunity there and including maybe especially for like participation. So as a donor acquisition strategy, there's a real like win-win opportunity. Giving Tuesday is a great chance to, to experiment with that. Giving Tuesday in 2020 was the biggest single day for donor acquisition of the year across all cause areas. That's a great time to try something out that's donor acquisition focused and, and collaboration uh, structured. I hope that what it does is give organizations a feeling of freedom to be more collaborative because they try something like that and they're like, you know what? That's much better than trying to cut each other's throats. I got Charity Waters uh, Giving Tuesday solicitation last year and they specifically said, we're good. Do not give to us. Please use Giving Tuesday as a reason to give to other organizations that you care about and you can skip us for now. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, no, it was an interesting email. I'll, I'll try and dig it up and send it your way if I can find it. We're doing a bunch of experiments right now on on some of these themes, including like we're really interested in how people are giving outside of the nonprofit industrial complex and, and getting again, getting that full picture of the profile of givers and how they prefer to give. And it's not a question of either or. Right. It's it's people have lots of giving behaviors. And we need to understand all of them so we understand what people's impact is so that we can build stronger communities. And if even if you're just a fundraiser that wants to maximize your result, like understanding the whole person, as you said, is really key to that. So we're doing some experiments to look at partnering uh, community aid or peer-to-peer or -peer causes that aren't uh, charity organization focus with charities that are working in the same area to see if we can find the right mechanisms for uh, get, getting a better result for both. Um, the people who are giving to Uncle Joe's cat's surgery GoFundMe are more likely to donate to charity, not less. 
and getting a better holistic view of all of the ways people give their time, their money, the their advocacy is is going to be key to this. And the more, more the more experiments that are happening and the more collaboration that people do, the more data we have to work with to understand what works best. From my experience, we, we've uncovered data that show uh, when somebody has a monthly recurring gift ongoing, they're actually more likely to contribute an additional one-time gift throughout the year uh, on top of their recurring, as well as during a campaign, people like through peer-to-peer, -peer, people are more likely to give a second time to your peer-to-peer -peer campaign than people later in the campaign who you might uh, you might ask that have not given previously. It, it is interesting to see that. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me how coming into this the way I did, I remember thinking, I don't want to be that guy who comes in and it's like, hey, nonprofit sector, I know how to business and you got to listen to me. Right. And I and so I I took on a lot of the received wisdom. I, I mean, I, I interrogated it to be sure, but I didn't assume that it was wrong. But that example you just gave, if you imagine talk, like just swap out whiskey brand with whatever you just all that thing, all the stuff you just said. Of course, the people who are buying regularly from you are the most likely to buy from you an additional time. Of course they are. Yeah. Like we're talking about the people who have the most affinity for you and your cause. Of course, they're the most likely to do it again or extra. It's natural. Well, they might get even more excited about it. Like just to carry on this analogy, right? Like, it, you know, if I've had good experience with these whiskeys and somebody recommends like something they loved, I'm going to go out and find it, right? A hundred percent. It's and and so you know there's a this gets really tactical too, right? Like organizations excluding donors from their email list because they're worried that they don't want to ask again. Well, we're you're leaving out your best customers, and and it doesn't mean and and again it goes back to just the the how we engage, right? And the quality of that message and what we do is really important. Um, Will just said segmentation over exclusion. Yeah, 100%. Like thinking about different donor segments and what matters to them and communicating to that segment in a way that is relevant and inspiring 100%, but do it all the time. When you know people ask me, how many, is, how many emails is the right email to, number of emails to send? You send as many emails as you can be interesting. And if that's 10 a year, great. If it's 10 a week, better. The, the key thing is you got to be interesting. And that means it's not all a solicitation, but and it's multiple ways to get involved. And but much more solicitation is possible if it's done thoughtfully and thinking about your role as providing people with the opportunity to give, to have agency over the things they care about rather than your uh, burdensome solicitation. If you think about it the latter way, then you're going to do a better job just in how you engage. It's just a mindset shift. Yeah, and I think also really customizing the ask. I mean, Giving Tuesday is a great opportunity to ask somebody to give who is not a consistent giver. But if somebody is actively fundraising for you, maybe the ask isn't to give. Maybe the ask is to do something different. 100%. When you started talking about the collaboration of or, and the donations to like small family-owned businesses and things like that, the, you know, the the intersect between nonprofit causes and for-profit uh, beneficiaries. Uh, what what are some of the, if any, what what are some of the trends that you've started to uncover? And I know it's early days, but are you starting to see any sort of preliminary results there? 
Yeah, I think what's what's what we're paying most attention to is is modes of giving outside of giving to five hundred one c three organizations. I mean, we're we're continuing to dive deep into the the donation trends and to provide tools and metrics for the for organizations to not just look in the rearview mirror, but actually strategize. We're we're taking volunteer data. And we're looking at where how to vol we're we're putting that volunteer data through the same data pipeline that we've been using for donations. And that's been really interesting in terms of opening up a door for research and examination of how various interventions affect people's giving in multiple dimensions. And we will continue to add data sources to that for other forms of of giving behavior so that we can get a better and better ongoing real-time picture of how how people respond to situations with generosity actions. Part of that also is about understanding what is called what people are calling mutual aid or unincorporated community care. Uh, we're trying to get a handle on what are how do people view this? Um, and it's interesting that the people who participate in mutual aid networks in the US um, are less likely to consider different forms of giving as being separate. So they see political giving and peer-to-peer -peer, like personal giving and charitable giving and community giving as they're more likely to see those things as the same um, and to differentiate less between them, which is perhaps not surprising. Um, and although there is a little, uh, you know, the, the people who participate the most of those things are a, a little more of their giving seems to skew outside of um, like two charitable organizations by percentage. They're, they're more, they're more giving in general, including to charities than the average. Um, so it's, so we're starting to see a pattern, like some patterns emerge um, around thinking about generosity, not in terms of did you give to a registered charity or did you give to this organization or that, but more in terms of a generosity profile of people. And some people are more inclined to be giving and will take advantage of multiple giving opportunities. Um, and other people are just less like that. Um, and so I think we, we have a what we're trying to do is give that holistic view of the the ecosystem. Um, and I think it, right now, what's important to, to understand as, as, a, as a nonprofit organization, what's important to understand is thinking about it in terms of who's going to have affinity for what I do, as opposed to are, did they take this action or that action, including like, did they give by check or did they give online or did they use peer, did they do peer to peer or something else? The most valuable donors are taking lots of different actions for lots of different causes for all like for lots of different people. And and so just tweaking again, it's a mindset shift in how we engage with that in mind. And you as the role of providing the opportunity for somebody to make a change. And then talk about talk to them a lot. Yeah. As you're talking, uh, it strikes me we might need to define um what a mutual aid network is. Uh, how do you define that? Yeah, so, well, great question. I mean, first, actually, I think we, we actually need a research definition of it. And that's one of the things that we've set out to do. And so 
we've we started with some research in seven countries asking about recent behavior and asking people, did you give time, money, advocacy? And we asked them whether they did it for or through a like a, a registered organization. Did they do it through some community group or association, or did they just do it as spontaneous kind of person to person? And so this is giving us a kind of spectrum of behavior across multiple cultures. Um, and then we asked Americans if they, we asked them specifically, did you participate in a mutual aid network? And then we looked at that versus a whole bunch of other things about their behavior and values. So part of the answer to your question is we're trying to come up with a, with a, with a specific definition, like something we can actually use in our research. Generally speaking, what we're talking about is organized but not incorporated giving mechanisms. So it's not I I baked I baked uh, a casserole for my neighbor, but it is I joined this network on Facebook that's organizing a casserole bake for people in need in my community, right? But it's likewise not. Um, I went and brought canned goods to the 501c3 that's running the food bank in my community, right? So it's the it's that intersection of people who are organized but not incorporated for a cause. And on the one hand, we saw, you know, it's it, a lot of people are talking about it. We saw arguably um, an upsurge in this in 2020 as people looked for ways to deal with all of the things that they were seeing in their community. They were proactively organizing, which is very exciting. On the other hand, this is a very old practice. And it's, I think, indicative of some of the inclusion challenges we have in the sector that we've been, we've been looking at this behavior as emergent when it predates the nonprofit industrial complex by millennia. And people have been giving this way and organizing in communities around the world and across the US to give in these ways literally forever. And we're not paying attention, we're not measuring it, we're not thinking about how important it is to the fabric of communities. And because we're not measuring it, paying attention to it, those people are left out of important conversations about giving. So part of our goal is to enfranchise these existing giving behaviors. I think this is a, a really important idea, especially as we talk about uh, engagement of younger generations, you know, millennial generation, homeland generation, who are, who are described as uh, giving to causes, not organizations, and having mistrust of institutions and, and things like that. But providing a less formal way to contribute meaningfully to causes that, that they care about may be the way to activate them in a way that organizations just haven't been tapping into. Yeah, I mean, that's the key, right? Like, what is compelling to givers that they, it's personal. Um, it gives them immediate frictionless opportunity to take action for good. Um, it's aligned with their values. It's distributed. It's not branded, right? It's about the cause. It's not about the, the operation. Like all of these things are, are, are possible to tap into as an organization. I think organizations that are effectively engaging in these ways are, are going to increasingly see that they're getting a better result. Can you touch on what you've observed in the, as the data challenges in the sector? I know some of it's cultural, 
Uh, it's very different, obviously, than in the retail world. Uh, what, what are organizations grappling with and how can we as a sector start to start to respond better to data and create better insights and, and move forward into the future in a way that creates a rising tide for all of us? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we talked about a little bit at the beginning that it, it is a cultural challenge and not a technical one. And what I mean by that is that a lot of the attempts to, quote, solve the data challenge in the social sector and, and philanthropic data in particular have been around standards, like a technical approach. We just need a standard. If everybody just complied with the standard and submitted their data to it, then we'd be able to, we'd know exactly where we stand. And the problem with that is that it just sort of hand waves the everybody's going to comply with our standard part, right? So you can create a standard all you want, but most of the, most of the standards that have been created have just gone nowhere because there's no incentive mechanism for people to contribute their data. And on the organization level, I think this has been one of the main challenges in getting effective uh, impact measurement going because the incentive model is, is, has, hasn't been there too much of the time. So when you can be in a situation where you've got full control, you're a funder or government or a group of funders with a, man, with a governing body or something where you can kind of dictate how people are going to behave, great, then apply your standard and go nuts. Um, for most of the rest of the activity, in fact, for the majority of what's going on in the sector, um, that's just not, not the case. The data isn't owned by a few people. It's owned by lots. Um, they're not going to share it just because, and they don't have the capacity to do a lot of work to comply with some standard that is arbitrarily imposed. So this is why our approach at the beginning was lower the barrier as much as possible. Whatever people are able to share is what we need. Find the bottlenecks in the data flows and, and really address our attention there. And then gradually iterate on what we're getting and improving that and let the standard emerge from the work, critically doing the hard work ourselves, not imposing that on those who are providing the data. None of that happens if people don't see that there's value in it for them. And I say this to our, our global teams, we have 50 global data chapters now who are launching their own initiatives and building on our infrastructure and methodology. And some of them are very advanced and doing lots of things and well-funded and others are, are very nascent. But I tell them all the same thing because one of the questions is, the first question is always, where are we going to get the data? And what I always tell them is, we don't ask for data. We ask for questions. And that's our first point of engagement is we talk to the people who have the data about what they need to learn. And then the data acquisition is, is there to serve that, that mutual objective. We have agreed on a priority question that needs to be answered. And then we say, all right, well, to answer that question, these are the data we need. And don't worry about this, what the state it's in. Punt it over here and we'll do the hard work of doing some analysis. And that got us a lot of traction really quick. And it also meant that we were on mission from the beginning, right? We were, we're doing things that people are gonna be able to use because it's based first and foremost on their problem statement. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's great. I mean, the, the, the importance of asking the right questions, I think cannot be understated. You know, it, it, on the one hand, if you're not asking the right questions or asking the wrong questions, you end up 
with completely <laughs> irrelevant or, or counterproductive results. But but I think also as a small organization that might not have a big data structure, starting with curiosity is probably a much easier entry point. Yeah, I think we, we have to be careful not to, whether we're a big organization or small, really avoid looking at this as we need the perfect data environment and the perfect metrics and business analysis situation before we can do anything and building all of that infrastructure and then and then going, all right, what are we going to ask? Right, like it just doesn't get you where you need to go. And, and the operational need just ends up um, flooding the your capacity. Whereas if you say, well, this is what I want to know and how can I chip away at answers to this question? Not only does it mean that you're, that you're able to, to be sl like slimmer, it also means you're a lot more agile because you haven't built a system around a situation that you're going to find is different six months later and go, oh, we got to rebuild that whole thing. And we've really been building our system a bit at a time based on what we learned. It gives us a lot of agility to go where we need to go. And, you know, to your point about asking the wrong question, it reminds me of a story. I know we don't have a lot of time, but I think it's really instructive. Major diaper brand, they ask their customers what the most important factor in choosing a diaper is. And consumers just right across the board just said absorbency is the most important factor. And when that diaper brand messaged that they had the most absorbent diaper, they lost share. Because what they were missing was that by and large, people trust the, the top diaper brands to be absorbent. So they weren't messaging on a differentiating factor. And this is why easy close tabs and elastic legs and mini mouse pictures, that's what that makes a difference. And we do this all the time in the sector. And, and we, we really try to interrogate ourselves. We are not perfect at all. But this constant like asking the question that we because of received wisdom and an expectation of what the answer is going to be and how it's like, that is a real problem that we have to, we have to face. Right. And it's why there's so much attention to, I think too much attention to trust in the sector in, in the U S in particular. Yeah. You need people to trust you before they're going to give to you, but it doesn't actually drive the donation. It's urgency and a personal emotional connection that drive the, the, the donation intent. Sector three insights did some really good in, uh, research on this, and and th that that's not well understood. And so we end up in this situation where we're we're messaging in a way that's not emotionally impactful um, because we ask the question: How important is it to you that you trust the organization that you give to? And people are like, well, "That's hundred percent important." As an organization, I feel like it's very easy to sort of be a slave to sort of macro trends and best practices. You know, how do you navigate the data that's available across the sector, the data that's unique to your organization, and then just gut feel? You know, as an organization, how should you strategize factoring in those three inputs and uh, to create a, a meaningful result for you? Yeah, it's a great question because we really haven't had good granular, like high fidelity real-time metrics in the sector, the way the commercial industries all do. First of all, I'll say, I feel like we really helped turn a corner on that in our partnership with the Association of Fundraising Professionals on the uh, Fundraising Effectiveness Project reporting. The FEP reporting now really does get quite granular. 
right? Where we're able to see those more micro trends in a more timely fashion, where we can, this is where we can get some insights. Like I was talking about new donor retention and why that's a critically important thing in 2021 and recapture the opportunity there and why, like that's the kind of, that's the kind of high fidelity we need as organizations to set some, um, some actual goals as opposed to just look in the rear view mirror. Go to market is always a thing. You know, I, I think that I've, this was true. Some of my, the biggest brands I ever worked with, this was always true. Like one of the best ways to just learn is try something. And the, the, fact that digital is now so accessible just opens up a huge opportunity there right where you can you can learn a lot really quickly without having to invest a lot and and so i would say looking at you know as an example if you're a fundraiser you look at donors you acquired last year how did you acquire them that's a fairly simple thing to figure out what are you going to talk to them about? Talk to them about the the effect that they had and why it was so great. And then you have to roll out a direct mail campaign on that message. No, you could run a Facebook ad for a thousand bucks and get a lot of data on which messages resonated and what tended to convert and then roll out your direct mail campaign, right? Then do all your email blasts, like just test it out. Um, the part of one of the, one of the hidden threats of the fear of frequency is you don't get enough data on what your donors care about. And so if you talk to them more frequently and in more varied ways, then you're going to get a lot of that insight and without it being really burdensome. What do you see, you know, based on all the information you have, you probably have the biggest data set in individual giving of any, sure. anybody in any organization on the planet. Based on that and, and your own sort of analysis of it, what do you see as the future of giving and of generosity? What's the world going to be like in 10 years in the, in the philanthropy space? My hope is that this unprecedented moment that drove so much participation and generosity in so many ways sticks. And there's certainly indications that that's likely. I mean, on the fundraising side, new donor retention, on the mutual aid and other behavior side, just like these the, these networks proliferating and growing and, and, and being thoughtful about the problems that they're going to solve. So I hope what we're seeing is a surge in grassroots support across causes, across communities and needs, and that this is not a moment of disaster relief, but a, a shift in cultures of giving around the world. Don't know that I can predict whether that's the case or not. For an individual or for an organization that is maybe new to Giving Tuesday, has not participated in the past, or wants to get more involved and do better, uh, how can they do that? How can they get in touch with with the organization? What advice would you give them for uh, for engaging with the campaign this year? Great. Great way to end. So 
First of all, Giving Tuesday is November 30 this year. One of the things I, I, I know, I feel it every year. Giving Tuesday is so big and there's so many things happening and there's so much creativity and there's so much you can do that it can be intimidating. And one of the things you have to get used to being around Giving Tuesday is knowing that you're only ever take, you're only ever realizing a portion of the opportunity because the opportunity is so big. But don't let that prevent you from doing something because the other, the flip side of that coin is the barrier is low. Do what's within your capacity. Don't miss it. It's celebratory. It's fun. Your supporters are going to be out there primed to give. Engage them. Don't be afraid of creativity. Don't be afraid to try something new. Don't be afraid to collaborate and be active. That can be as simple as talking about your mission. It can be as simple as thanking donors. It can be as simple as some peer-to-peer -peer campaigns and activating uh, fundraisers. There's lot. It's, it can be getting people to come out and volunteer. It can be giving back yourselves. Like there's literally no limit, um, and including no campaign is too small. Awesome. Thanks so much, Woodrow. I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on, joining us, and, and sharing your, your insights and your experience with us. I, I sincerely hope you, you join us again in the future and give us updates on, on what you uncover after this year. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. So that's our show for this week. We hope you really enjoyed it, and maybe it even got the wheels turning for ways that you can leverage this year's Giving Tuesday campaign to create some big new opportunities for your organization or those you support. Thanks, as always, to our guest, Woodrow Rosenbaum. We thoroughly enjoyed our chat with him this week and promise to do our best to get him back on the program again sometime next year. You can learn more about Woodrow's work at Giving Tuesday in the show notes at causeandpurpose.com. As always, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a comment through our website, recommend future guests, suggest new ideas for the show or future topics. And of course, leaving us a positive review wherever you listen to podcasts is always helpful as well. Until next time, Cause and Purpose is a production of Moonshot.co. On behalf of myself, Woodrow, and our entire team, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to catching up with you again soon.